Hello, hello. I am your host, Dorotia Barna, and you are listening to the Mind Society Speaker Series, where we invite professors, researchers, and graduate students specializing in psychology to share and discuss their unique research questions, most recent studies, along with their fascinating findings. Coming from some of the top universities throughout the world, these experts will share what they've been working on in their labs and illuminate their discoveries so that we can use this information as sources of knowledge to elevate the quality of our lives and the way we engage with and interpret others. Thanks for listening. Welcome to our last episode of the Mind Society's first season. I wanted our final guest to be someone who I look up to academically and professionally. This individual was my professor for a few courses, and I've also been a research assistant in his lab for the past two semesters, where we've been discussing clinical theories, analyzing new publications in the field, and working on numerous studies in-house. Dr. Richard McNally is currently the director of clinical training at Harvard's psychology department and has been a faculty member for decades. He's published numerous peer-reviewed articles in the most esteemed journals and has researched the realms of network analysis, PTSD, OCD, along with anxiety and emotional disorders. He's paving the way in the psychological world as a thought leader. Today, I chose a topic that many of us have experienced to a certain degree, be it directly or indirectly, anxiety. My conversation with Dr. McNally is up next. Society, Dr. McNally. I'm so happy and excited to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So you are the director of clinical psychology at Harvard, where you've spent a fair amount of time on uh, researching anxiety disorders. Could you explain to us exactly what anxiety is and the effect it has on all of us? Well, <clears throat> the capacity to experience anxiety is an, an evolved adaptation, so to speak. It's a enables us to uh, prepare for threats, detect and prepare for threats that are uh, looming in the future. Uh, and uh, anxiety disorders are, are really conditions where a person's anxiety is disproportionate to the probability or the magnitude of the threatening event that the person envisions might happen to them. Uh, and so you find that it's, uh, it's, it's disproportionate uh, it tends to be uh, chronic, it's repetitive, and it also impairs the person's life. And so, and that's sort of the key issue here. So there's no sharp boundary, really, between anxiety that's functional or normal and anxiety that is deemed pathological. But that's really the basic core of that. And then you have anxiety, different types of anxieties, uh, anxiety disorders, rather, each of which has a different focus, so to speak. Got it. Is it true that anxiety is, or anxiety disorders are the number one mental illness in the country or perhaps the world right now? Well, it all depends on how you're defining these two, where the thresholds are, for example. So just take one example, social anxiety disorder, formerly called social phobia, was deemed relatively rare. Then they adjusted what counts as social phobia, and suddenly, boom, you have an epidemic on your hands. That said, anxiety disorders as a group are very, very common, and along with mood disorders, especially major depression, uh, they, they do constitute a large burden on the world overall, not just here in the USA. How would someone be able to tell if the anxiety that they're feeling is pathological? 
Well, again, it's, it deals with how, how often the person is anxious. Uh, to what extent does it seem sort of relatively irrational? That is say out of proportion. Is it getting in the way of their life? I mean, that's really the key issue here. What are those, what's the criteria for it getting into in the way of someone's life, it being impairing or distressing? What are some examples of that? Well, for example, consider someone with a panic disorder and agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is really a fear of going into places in which escape might be challenging or difficult or embarrassing should you be struck by a out-of-the-blue panic attack. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, and individuals who become quite agoraphobic uh, become, very, it's very difficult for them to do things such as take the T, the subway, or fly in an airplane, or ride in the backseat of a car because they feel kind of enclosed, or ride in elevators. It's not the opposite of claustrophobia. It's, it sounds like it's not a fear of open spaces. It's a, it's a fear of places where panic might occur. So going on a boat in the middle of the river, for example, or going into a theater, all of these sorts of situations are, are going to be very difficult. Uh, and so when a person can't go shopping, they can't go to work, they can't go to restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, that's quite impairing. People who have social anxiety disorder, they long to connect with other people, but their sort of intense and disproportionate shyness, so to speak, leads them to avoid social situations which produces loneliness and depression, sometimes excessive drinking as well. So when it's, these are some of the examples of impairment. Someone might drop out of college because they have a requirement where they have to take a speech class. I mean, I've, I've seen cases like that. They just dropped out, speak in front of a group of people. Are you kidding me? I can't do that. <laughs> so is there a certain type of anxiety disorder that's most prevalent and most common? Uh, well, the, the, you can ask the question in two ways. One is uh, most prominent in a clinical uh, a situation, uh, and then one most prominent prominent in the general population. And if you're talking about the general population, usually specific fears and phobias are the most common. But these are usually uh, seldom so impairing that they wind up in the clinic. For example, you find a lot of people are afraid of snakes and spiders. But usually they can kind of navigate their navigate around their life without having to have the fear of a snake or a spider treated. The ones that you see, the ones that are most impairing that you see most in the clinic are usually panic disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, and social anxiety disorder. I should also mention that there are a couple of syndromes that were always classified as anxiety disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder, that in the latest iteration of our diagnostic manual that appeared 2013, those syndromes were moved into two other categories. This is basically just, as someone once said, shuffling the, the desk chairs on the Titanic, actually. But, but, but they are often considered... Uh, in the anxiety disorders. When I teach a course on anxiety disorders, I um, also include PTSD and OCD because anxiety is a big component of both of those. And those are, those are fairly common as well. So this will be a good segue to now delve into the specific research that you've been conducting at Harvard in the terms of anxiety disorders. Can you maybe start walking us through some of your recent studies and then your subsequent findings? Oh my. <laughs> we have, um, yeah. Uh, I also, I also just, uh, I, whatever I find interesting, I, I start studying. So it, um, some of the topics have led, you know, out of that. But if you want me to confine things to uh, the anxiety disorders, I'll just sort of pull out different examples. Okay. One, uh, uh, one study we did with uh, social phobia, social anxiety disorder, we had, and we're comparing to healthy controls, comparison subjects. 
And um, we're interested in theory of mind. Uh, the theory, there's a lot of tests that one can administer uh, that usually were developed with people with autism who uh, often lack a theory of mind module, as the cognitive psychologists would put it. That is to say, they have a hard time seeing the world through the eyes of another person, putting themselves in the other person's shoes. And uh, so they have these deficits in, in theory of mind. And you know, e even young kids will, will start developing a good theory of a mind, you know, around young toddlers will start uh, doing this. But um, some of the autistic folks find this extremely difficult. Okay, so we cut to the chase. What we found with the social anxiety disorders people, when they're making inferences about social situations, what they're thinking and everything, they also had problems with theory of mind. But it was exactly the opposite of what people with autism do. People with autism have very impoverished conceptions about what someone else might be thinking or feeling in a social context. These folks went overboard. They, they were sort of reading much more into the, the social scenes than um, folks who didn't have social anxiety disorder. So they're over-interpreting things. And so, so they had this kind of an overshoot. They, they had problems with the theory of mind. It was in the opposite direction of people with, uh, with autism. This overestimation or overanalyzation, I mean, these ideas that they had, I mean, were they correct? Were they incorrect? Were they sort of completely out of the box, correct as far as what the other person might be thinking or feeling? It was, it was not as if they were completely off base, but, but, but they, they were adding much more to it. Right. You know, and, and so if you see this even in, in their situations, they overinterpret things. You know, if someone if they're speaking in class and someone's hmm, uh, has, hmm, looks looks funny like that, uh, it, what is the person thinking? Like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Or maybe, hmm, this guy's an idiot. What is he doing here? It's more of the latter. Right. Uh, and, and so reading much more into that, someone who just sort of you know, turns their head slightly like that. And, and so they overinterpret those things. That's what I'm referring to. Uh, and so they're, they're clearly are focusing in on certain things, but they're going way beyond this. Um, whereas people with autism are in the other other direction. Yeah. So you know, so that's, uh, uh, and, you know, that's one example. You know, we've done other ones as well with, um, say, attention bias modification research. I mean, some of the early studies myself and other uh, others did showed that people with post traumatic stress disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, that they would tend to have sort of an attentional bias for threat. That is to say, uh, if they were performing a task, they would have a harder time doing it if there's something, it could be a word, it could be a picture, it could be anything really that's uh, potentially threatening or related to threat. They would tend to focus in on that at the, at the cost of whatever tasks they're trying to perform. So, so we had done these original tasks, say, with Vietnam veterans with and without PTSD. They're all, they're all in the military and, and saw combat. But um, so we'd have them, you know, uh, doing what we call an emotional stroop task, where they're simply reading uh, the colors, reading off the colors of words that appear as fast as they can. So they're saying red, blue, green, etc., etc. The original stroop task that people often encounter in introduction to psychology classes will involve, say, the word R-E-D, red. It'll appear in blue letters, and your job is to inhibit uh, your attention from the words meaning and, and shout out the color as fast as you can. Uh, so it would be blue for the word R-E-D written in blue letters. Okay, so, so that's the idea. Uh, and, and so with people who've got anxiety disorders, uh, you know, when they would see uh, something like uh, medevac or body bags or Charlie or all these Vietnam related things, 
sap or et cetera, et cetera, uh, they had a hard time naming those colors. The combat veterans without PTSD could perform the task reasonably well, but the others, because of the apparently the intrusive cognitions associated with the PTSD, uh, the meaning of these words were you know, coming right on them, and it was very hard to name their colors. You also find that with rape victims as well with PTSD and uh, and other uh, and also other anxiety disorders. The only thing that's different is the uh, the content of the words would differ. So, for example, we had some of our patients in my clinic with obsessive compulsive disorder who were kind of a, a clinical comparison group to the the Vietnam vets with PTSD, and they had no problems with that. Well, with the Vietnam War, right? they sailed right through the task, just like the healthy subjects did. But the guys with the PTSD had, had difficulties or slowed down. Uh, what's interesting about some of those cognitive tasks is that when people get better, they often improve on these. And so uh, you know, treatment tends to enable them to control their attention. Stuff that was once attention-grabbing and disturbing, et cetera, is much less so. And so they can perform the task much better. And so essentially what those sort of cognitive experimental psychology-like paradigms do is it provides additional measure of what, what has gone awry with these folks that doesn't be, it's not based on the subjective self-reports or just reaction time data. Okay. And uh, a, a, fr a friend of mine down in Australia, we call him Mac Cloud, what he suggested is that the tasks that could be used to measure the, the sort of attentional biases, the idea here, of course, that if you're attending to something that's threatening, it makes you more anxious, you attend to it more, and you sort of get you know, really pulled away from whatever you want to be doing. Say if you're a socially anxious person at a party, you're focusing on, on all these other clues and saying, oh my God, what do these people think of me? And they you know, get into one of these, get caught in one's own head, so to speak. Now, so his idea is, well, maybe what we can do is take the same paradigm and we can have them, uh, uh, it's not the Stroop paradigm, it's a slightly different one, but to, to actually retrain people's attention. Uh, and so then there was a lot of work done on on that as well, including by by my group as well on the, trying to retrain attention. Uh, and it, it's been a little bit sort of confusing insofar as that we are able to reduce, say, social anxiety in a lot of these people. But we also had another control condition that also involved training, but it wasn't systematically designed to reduce the attentional bias. And the training thing still made them improve. And, and so in that particular study, what uh, what seemed to be going on is that it was almost like a placebo in some sense, that regardless of whether your attention was being directly trained or not, just going through the sort of computer-based kind of app uh, apparently emboldened people to go into settings feeling more confident and had good experiences and got desensitized in that fashion. But yeah, so that's some of the, uh, that's some of the work of attention, yeah. So would you say that these studies have helped in the interventions of anxiety disorders, possibly including PTSD? Well, they have. It ha well, they have. With PTSD, it's been uh, less impressive, uh, quite frankly. I think the ones where it's been where you've seen these sorts of intervention programs where you're taking a cognitive psychology paradigm that is designed to measure attention, you're tweaking it in such a way that you actually end up having like a, almost like a game like where you are, there's a goal to respond quickly to certain cues and, and you can actually retrain the person's attention away from threatening cues. Okay, so that's attention bias modification. Yeah, those have, uh, it's been somewhat inconsistent, but it tends to work best with, with folks with generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder, where they, they get kind of caught in their head with all this sorts of stuff as opposed to, for example, people with specific phobias, 
where, where fears of spiders and snakes or with PTSD when people have traumatic nightmares and flashbacks and things of that sort. But yeah, so some of the, some of the paradigms have, have been used to retrain these things. As far as your research goes, are you currently working on any studies in the realm of anxiety or perhaps maybe do you have a future direction that you're intending and hoping to go into? Well, uh, we've been, um, our, our team has been doing a number of different things, some of them related to, directly to anxiety, sort of others less so. Uh, so, for example, we've, we've done a number of studies on different forms of exercise in emotion regulation. Uh, now, these are not in clinical, for, well, we have had people with high anxiety in some of the studies. I mean, they were talking, this is a program of research, right? But the original studies, I'll just mention a couple of these here. So we would randomize uh, individuals to do uh, aerobic exercise. Uh, this is with a stationary bicycle. That's been their typical one. Or with stretching exercises or with just simply relaxing and with watching this little film and music, you know, things of that sort. So basically they're relaxing. And, and, then, uh, and then after that, we would present them, say, with a stressful film clip. A sad one, actually, a very sad one. And what we found was, was quite interesting is that because even though we've sort of known that person, if they go out and exercise, they often will feel better, can lift their mood and things of that sort. Exercise has been mainly studied with depression. It's now being used with um, anxiety disorders as well. It can be quite effective. And But what we were studying was something slightly different. Um, that is to say, if someone had exercised first, and then they were exposed to something that would say induce sadness in anyone. What we found is that the, the aerobic exercisers, we haven't studied weight training or anything like that, or high intensity interval conditioning or any of that sort of stuff yet. But the people who've done the aerobic exercise versus the stretching and all that stuff, they bounce back much quicker from a sad mood induction. And so it seems as if it doesn't prevent a person from being experiencing an unpleasant emotion that is actually fits the circumstances, but it seems to enable them to bounce back quicker. Uh, and so it's, I guess you might call it sort of a a resilience trick, uh, yeah, or, or yeah, something that actually prepares you uh, to cope better with something that is stressful later. Uh, and so, yes, we've done a number of studies along that line, and we are ready to go with a new one with high-intensity interval conditioning. It's quite different. It's taken over exercise physiology very much, right? The people who are doing all the health measures and all that stuff. But we were wondering, how will that also cash out with emotion regulation? Will it render people more resilient to the effects of stressors in the sense that they bounce back quicker from them? Um, yeah, so, we, so, so that's another line of research that is sort of, it's not necessarily anxiety disorders. Some of the studies we have looked at highly anxious people and so forth in there that, you know, GAD-like uh, symptoms. Definitely. I think that's really translatable, too, when it comes to stressful situations, even for people that don't have anxiety-prone disorders. I think that's really interesting, actually. And I would be curious to see how the other studies develop and what the findings are with that. For the individuals that don't have such a severe anxiety diagnosis, but people can sometimes feel, let's say, mild to moderate anxiety in their lives from normal stressful stimuli, perhaps just like this aerobic method or option, are there any other methods that people can use or take part in to control their anxiety or perhaps suppress it? 
even though I'm sure you can't avoid feeling anxious, what are some methods that have perhaps scientific or empirical backing that people can possibly use on their in their day-to-day lives to limit the extent of their anxiety? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. The um Probably the most interesting one, I think, has been done by some of my, well, former, well, one of them is still a colleague of mine, but uh, the others are, are now have moved on. Jeremy Jameson, Matt Nock, and Wendy Berry Mendez, who studied the way people appraise the physiological sensations that are related to potentially stressful situations, say like your heart beating fast and, and feeling revved up and so forth. And what they found with a very simple manipulation where subjects who are either going to be giving a speech or taking the um, a practice test for the math GRE, the graduate record examination, which is like a SAT test on steroids, big, big, you know, challenging situations like that. People often feel anxious or speaking in public or test anxiety. And so what, what they found is that when, when subjects are instructed that the bodily sensations, the arousal that they're feeling, that they're pumped up, what that means really is that they are ready to meet a challenge, that this actually means they're, they're, they're on their game, so to speak. You've got oxygenated blood pumping through the brain, then the body, the muscles, and you're ready to go. So it's not, so it actually means that you're fired up and ready to tackle this challenge. Uh, and then you find from that sort of appraisal, you get vasoconstriction, so the blood is flowing more freely to the peripheries uh, versus vaso, uh, vaso, excuse me, vasodilation, not vasoconstriction. Vasodilation is what happens. Uh, uh, and um, vasoconstriction is when the person interprets myself as, oh my God, I'm getting anxious. I'm going to panic. I'm going to blow the test or the speech. I'm going to freeze up, et cetera, et cetera. And that uh, uh, obviously doesn't work very well. So they found out that this simple instruction that when you're in a challenging situation, uh, appraising uh, the, 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 the physiological signals of arousal is, is, is telling you that you're pumped up and ready to go. And it's like this approach motivation, the challenge motivation that actually leads to better outcomes. And so how people interpret the bodily sensations is really quite important. And, a very, and so that's a very practical, useful thing in ordinary stressful situations that you're alert, you're pumped up, you're ready to go, you get lots of oxidative bre- blood running through your brain. And, and so. so I think that's a wonderful idea. So the reappraisal of your physiological feelings that you have in your body, your heart rate pumping, maybe you're getting a little shaky. So in those sort of moments, what would you suggest that some, how could someone reappraise that? What are the internal thought processes that could be going on or the self-talk or the internal dialogue that could be taking place at that time? What could we tell ourselves in those moments of reappraisal? I'm pumped up. I'm ready to go. (laughs) That it's okay. That my heart is beating this fast. I'm not going to die. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good thing. Oh, you're not going to die. I mean, I mean, uh, all those reactions are, are defensive. Reactions. They're, they're, those are adaptations that uh, promote survival. <laughs> yeah, the, the people with patients with panic disorder, they often think that, oh my goodness, my heart's going to give out. I'm going to die of a heart attack and so forth. But no, actually, the, the, the capacity for getting that aroused and getting that fired up in, a, say, a panic attack is precisely what mobilizes flight when you need to flee. And that's why you're here today, because your ancestors had that and they survived and so you're blessed with that capacity as well. Uh, of course, it's a nuisance to have panic attacks in places where it's inconvenient, but it's not dangerous. 
But people do, in fact, uh, myself and Steve Reese, we had studied anxiety sensitivity. It was a whole, that was a huge research program. I don't work on that now, but we started that many years ago, that there's sort of a individual differences in the degrees to which a person will tend to respond fearfully to bodily sensations associated with anxiety. And that is a risk factor for having developing panic disorder uh, and actually other anxiety disorders as well, which is what Steve Reese thought. I always thought it was confined to panic disorder. It turns out he was right. I was, uh, he, he was right and I was wrong about that. But, um, but it, it is a risk factor uh, for panic and other related conditions. Got it. And how can one determine their level of anxiety sensitivity? Well, we had developed the anxiety sensitivity index, a very straightforward measure yeah, on this. And it'll be available in an article published in Behavior Research and Therapy, 1986, so the first issue of the year. So it's Reese Kersky, Pearson, and McNally. In what cases is reappraisal perhaps disadvantageous? It's disadvantageous if there's situations in which the circumstances that are prompting the distress and, and the potential reappraisal uh, could be cha- could be changed. In other words, if it's mm-hmm. actionable, sometimes you can simply you know remove the, the annoyance, remove the distress-producing situation, rather than uh, reappraising your irritable, angry, obnoxious boss's statements as, well, gee, he's just having a tough day. His wife may be going to leave him or God only knows what. He's got an ulcer. Just, you know, he's having a rough day. I should just ignore this. You might simply find your life a lot easier if you simply got a job where the boss was not like that. That would be an example where, uh, I mean, you could reappraise. So the reappraisal is often most uh, helpful, especially when circumstances may not be changeable. For example, you'll you'll find people who've lost a loved one. You'll see a lot of reappraisals in, in grief. Someone will say, you know, this really... Well, at least he's no longer in pain any longer, or it was God's wish. I mean, the whole range of, of appraisals that someone might have when someone has died, and you can't do anything about that directly. Is there anything else that you might want to say about anxiety disorders? Any, any other studies that you've encountered that is taking this realm of psychology, clinical psychology, that is, that is in a certain direction, in a different direction, perhaps? There's a couple of comments I can make on that. If you're talking about applied applications or maybe a deeper understanding of... I think a deeper understanding. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, one of my uh, recent PhD students, Don Robinow, who's a professor in uh, psychiatry department, he's a clinical psychologist here at uh, Harvard Medical School. He's based at Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, Don, he, you know, we did work on complicated grief and trauma, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he also did a lot of clinical work with panic disorder patients. And he did a postdoc at the University of Amsterdam with uh, Denny Boersboom, who's a terrific psychometrician there. And there's a, there's a group over there, and you know, both Don and I have collaborated with those guys. We've got a lot of a whole large network of people doing well network analysis, actually computational models of um, anxiety and anxiety disorders. And Don was taking uh, is the lead author on this one paper. I think we have about eight or nine of us working on this on different parts, but doing formal computational modeling of processes that that unfold in panic disorder and agoraphobia. And these processes occur at, on different time scales. For example, this is a catastrophic misappraisal of bodily sensations. 
that you so often see in panic disorder that can incite a spiral of, of panic, which of course does stop, right? And so if you're going to model this computationally, you have to have uh, ways of building in the brakes there and, and things of that sort. And you know, it's getting it's getting more complicated with difference equations, differential equations, and stuff that's engineering and physics stuff that we're, we're squeezing into this. And so um, the idea here is to what extent we've been able to capture mathematically how all these processes unfold, these feedback loops and the like, and also the uh, uh, the ones that are on slower time scales, such as the development of avoidance behavior, which usually, usually develops more slowly after people have had these panic attacks. And so we're revising this big manuscript right now. So that's a entirely new direction. But what what we've sort of seen generally in psychology, in clinical psychology in particular, is you know, behind the scenes is so many developments in mathematical, statistical methods and computational power that uh, it's opening up whole new different venues. Now, some of this has been machine learning and some of these things, so sort of these atheoretical approaches, uh, it's not what we're doing, but in all the work on network analysis, I mean, this takes us into a, a lot of weeds, unfortunately, but I'm, I'm very much involved in that. So for example, we, we I'll just, just tell you the results of one study that just got accepted for publication um, uh, that I did with uh, bipolar disorder patients. They are, we have about 460 of these folks in various stages of you know, mania, hypomania, normal mood, severe depression, like, and mixed mania, where you get manic symptoms and depression symptoms at the same time. It's really quite something old. But what we found when we're doing all these Bayesian and Gaussian graphical models to, to sort of model the processes of bipolar disorder, when the dust settled from very different types of network approaches, we, we found that really what seemed to be going on, that bipolar disorder fundamentally seems not to be so much a mood disorder as it's technically called, but rather an energy dysregulation disorder. And so you have people having a lot of energy is a good thing. And some people when they're hypomanic, they get a lot of things done. But of course, this can get can fly out of control into full-blown mania, which is a very dangerous condition. And the other contrast, when people get severely depressed, you know, they just don't have the energy. They can barely move. I mean, it's it's awful. Uh, and so what seemed to be happening here is that the, the, the mechanisms that regulate energy uh, seem to go, they seem to go awry. And because of that, you see the mood changes and everything else flowing from that rather than the other way around, that the person becomes, you know, super elated or super irritable and uh, agitated or severely sad and depressed and angry, et cetera. That, that seems to be uh, dependent upon the energy dysregulation. So it, it, all this emerged from our network analyses, computational stuff. And then my colleague, Andy Nirenberg, biological psychiatrist, was one of my collaborators. And he says, well, you know, there's totally independent research that suggests that mitochondria, the, the energy uh, factories in, in, our, in, in our cells, um, are, are, don't work properly in bipolar disorder. And so we have one of those light bulbs flashing above our heads. Uh -huh. Isn't this interesting that some of the work at the cellular level and some of the, the mathematical computational stuff that we're, we're doing at the level of symptoms and their interactions, the network stuff, seem to be converging on an interesting story about what's gone wrong with folks with bipolar disorder. It used to be an energy dysregulation condition. Now, you know, I'm very excited about this. And so I got to, you know, you have to have all the problem capital. Well, it's got to be replicated and so on and so forth. But it, it, I don't know. So the, we're doing a lot of that work as well. So, yeah, I, 
I follow whatever I find interesting rather than just sticking with uh, say anxiety disorders per se. Got it. No, this is all wonderful. And I'm so excited to see the findings, read about that, um, and also see where this general direction of your specific research is going in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. McNally, for joining us today. This has been a stimulating conversation. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap for season one. I wanted to take this moment to thank you for listening to the Mind Society throughout this inaugural season. We explored so many vast and complex topics. I hope that you were able to gain some insight into the way the mind works beyond what you already knew. The speaker series was truly meant to broaden your understanding of the psyche and to also help realize that there's so much more to learn about each other and ourselves than the status quo. Future seasons will include professors, researchers, and psychologists who are based internationally, work with clients in specific psychopathologies, and who are experimenting on the peculiar and the macabre. Despite our continued efforts to ensure that the information we share is evidence-based, we'll make sure to focus on providing practical ways to implement the information we're sharing. We hope you'll continue to join us in our journey towards discovering and sharing the depths of the mind for many seasons to come. You can sign up for our newsletter on themind-society.com for updates on when the new season will air or follow us on our social media platforms, including our Instagram handle at The Mind Society. Thank you so much again for listening and supporting this endeavor. And until next time, remember to stay curious. Thank you.